On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee with you? The Son of Man must be delivered over the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be risen again. Then they remembered the words. This is the word of the Lord. God, I just pray today that our hearts will be opened to the message that you have for us, a way that we can look into the resurrection in a new way, the way that we can engage it different, and, and most importantly, the way that we can live it in the world. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this place where we gather to bring you all our worship and all our praise. Help us to set aside the other stuff, the ham in the crock pot, all the things, the gathering later, to just one moment to be with you and to worship you. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray and believe, amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. Uh, my name's Carrie. I'm the pastor here at Alive in Granville, and I'm so glad that you're here. And so for the last few weeks, I keep asking you, I keep saying this phrase, can you imagine? Right? Because I think that's the only way we can sort of be gathered in this place if we can imagine what it must have been like. If we can take the biblical text and look at it for a moment in its time and in its place and in its culture. That's what we've been doing. That's what we're about because I think it can uncover some different truths for us. So can you even imagine what it must have been like for these women to go to the tomb to, to continue their grief? right, to, to go and to continue to, to uh, put spices on the body, to do those things that they were called to do that they, they, couldn't, they didn't have time to do because of Sabbath. So they're going there in this moment of grief and they're coming and it's empty. What in the world must have been going through their head? I can't even begin to imagine. How could this possibly be true? This wasn't the first time that Jesus' disciples, the people that he surrounded himself with, were confused by what he did, right? We constantly read that. And the disciples did not understand. And this had to be one of those moments where they were like, for real, I really, I have no idea what's going on. Because how could, how could this happen? They're already, their emotions are, and, and things that they're thinking are compounded by the grief that they feel, right? We think differently when we're in that place of deep sorrow, and so they, they've got that compounded. How, how could he be alive? How, he, they've only ever seen somebody be raised by the dead by him, right? He raised Jairus' daughter. He raised Lazarus from the dead not all that long ago. How is he supposed to be alive when he's the only one that can raise people from the dead? The guy that does that is dead. That has got to be crazy. And they, they go to their default position of doubt. I get Peter. Man, I resonate with him for a lot of different reasons, and that is a teaching for another time. Um, he, he's kind of this act first, think later. I could tell you stories about how that's been true in my life. But Peter runs to the, to the tomb. He wants to see it for himself 
because he's filled with there's just no way. And he continues and he doesn't know. So pick, pick it up with me at verse nine if you have a Bible or if you have a device or just listen to my wonderful voice. You're welcome. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, my friend Peter, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. They have been spending, these are the people that have been spending time with Jesus. Nobody knew him better than the 12, right? There were people that he'd been surrounding himself with that understood what Jesus was about, but nobody knew him better than the 12, and Peter was close to him. And Peter, upon finding the tomb empty, his first thought was not to be like, okay, I think I remember Jesus saying something about this. Because it couldn't, it couldn't possibly be, so he doubts. And I I find myself in my own life and in my own faith where doubt feels very real. Do you do that? Do you doubt at all? Uh, I used to sit across the table from college students. That was my job. It was the best. I had a coffee budget. Amazing. And I would sit there and I would talk to them. And so much of the doubt about knowing who God is, believing in his son Jesus, and that he was there to redeem the world, and their sins are no longer, but they're like, I don't know if that's true. I, I know it, but I don't know it in my heart that, that, that Jesus has done that for me, that Jesus could be everything that he said he could be. Is he really in control of my life? What happens when really bad things, when really bad things happen, when we lose the people that we love and it doesn't make any sense and it wrecks our understanding of Jesus because doubt creeps in. Doubt tends to be our default position right? And we, we doubt his power. Sometimes we doubt if he's even really there at all, especially in those difficult moments where we want to cling to him. And that's what we talk about, especially in our Christian culture, right? When bad things happen, we just encourage you to cling and to pray and to do all these things. But inside, when we're honest with ourselves, we don't get it either. We don't know why you go through this. We don't know, we know that God is sovereign, but we don't, it doesn't make sense to us. We doubt the scriptures that, because they seem contradictory and we fight over what they say and we lob bullets at each other or, or stones at each other because we think it says this. You're wrong and we think it says this. But the, the amazing thing about the doubt is that I believe, I know with certainty that God welcomes it. Because if you didn't ask the hard questions, if you didn't want to know, meaning you didn't care, doubt is different than dismissal. To just simply dismiss God would be one thing and to, and to move on with your life. But the doubting is where God draws us close because when you doubt, you get closer. You zoom in, you inspect things, you, you talk about things, you bring other people in. And the God of the universe, the Jesus that died for our sins and was resurrected is not going to fall apart because you have questions. Right? Can I get an amen from the CRC? All right. God is not going to fall apart. This idea of God isn't going to fall apart because you have questions, because doubt is going to bring you in. 
Doubt produces faith and works us towards discovery and thinking for ourselves. And Jesus welcomes it. That's the crazy thing about this doubt piece is that we're allowed to draw our own conclusions, right? If you talk to a teacher, that's their best thing, right? You teach third grade, Mary. What's your favorite part? Yep. <laughs> She's a reader, right? But when they get to read these books, right, and decide for themselves what it means for them, that all the tools that she's going to teach them are going to help them draw their own conclusions. That's what Jesus wants for us. That's what faith is supposed to be for us, is that he allows us to draw our own conclusions. It's why we have different belief systems even within the Christian faith. It's because we're allowed for that doubt to help us decide, to help us discern what God has for us. There's actually a great um, scholar, his name is Peter Rollins, uh, and he has been doing amazing work. He's a, a teacher, professor, doctor. He's been doing some work in Belfast with um, the, the Protestant and the Catholics and just really trying to bring some restoration. Now he has a really thick accent, so I need you to like lean forward, turn up your ears, and listen to what he has to say about doubt. Christianity is a fascinating religion because whereas lots of religions have a place for doubt, in Christianity God doubts God. On the cross Christ shouts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So whenever you doubt, you're not brought near to God. Or when you doubt, it's not a test from God. When you actually doubt and you feel God isn't there, you're standing in the very sight of Christ. You're experiencing what Christ experienced on the cross. This doubt is central to faith. You'd take someone like Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa doubted God most of her adult life. She thought God wasn't there. She thought God wasn't listening to her prayers. And so when this was discovered, people went, this is terrible, Mother Teresa wasn't a real Christian. And then you go, but no, she lived her faith. Her faith was bodily, it was resurrection faith. It wasn't something abstract, it was something real and concrete. So this doubt is not something for us to fear, it's something for us to grasp as a purifying fire that helps us find out what we really are. I think he has something to say about doubt. I encourage, go Google him and read all his stuff and listen to his stuff, but that doubt is real and it draws us closer. Now follow me into the next section. We're just gonna follow uh, Luke 24 today. And it picks it up at verse uh, 13, where he's going to be on the road to Emmaus. Because if you notice, it's, he's, he's risen and the story continues. Sometimes we have this idea that the story stops. It continues. Now, the same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with him, but they were kept from recognizing him. So let's pause there for one second, because this story um, has kind of, I don't know, messed with me for a little bit, and or I skipped it because it doesn't make any sense to me. And so it's been fun to just take a little step back and to say, okay, so one, it's, there's seven miles outside of Jerusalem. The Passover festival had just ended in that town. So it would not have been weird for them to have, have come across somebody else traveling back to their village on the road on the way back home. 
it would have been super breezy. You'd be like, oh, people are heading back to their village. Great, good to see you. We'll walk together for a while. But the language here sort of lets us know that they were kept from recognizing him, meaning that God was the one at play here, not, not letting them know and recognize who Jesus is. So in verse 17, I love this part, I get laugh a little bit. He asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? So this is their sort of like, what are you talking about? So they stood still, their faces downcast, right? I can imagine they're having this conversation and then that question just makes everything change. Their whole demeanor changes. And one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days? Are you kidding me right now with this question? <laughs> are you kidding me, right? They, they, so much so that as they were walking, they stopped. They stood still in their tracks. Are you kidding me? You have got to be living under a rock somewhere that you don't know about this Jesus and what has just happened to him. And then Jesus asks the follow-up shocking question, what things, I don't know what's going on, right? <laughs> and then they answer, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They, they went to the tomb early in the morning, but they didn't find his body. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. Can you imagine the confusion? Can you hear it? That's how I always read it because they're, they're recounting the story because why? Jesus himself makes them tell him the story about himself, right? Jesus is doing something here. He wants them to be able to communicate what they believe about him. What did you believe about who I was? He wants to hear that from their own, from their own lips, right? In verse 21, but we had hoped. That feels a little like, ugh, we'd hoped. We thought that the, what the Messiah meant for us was that he was going to overthrow the Romans, restore Israel. We talked about this last week. He didn't do any of that. We thought he was the guy. Turns out he was a really good guy, but wasn't the guy. They're, they were disappointed. They were confused because they'd seen him do so many things. Not only did he not overthrow the Romans, but he died by the hands of their Roman oppressors on a cross of their own invention. That was a Roman thing. It's just, they're confused. They're confused about what's going on because friends of theirs have said, like, we think he may have risen. Like, he is not there, but I also don't know where he is. So the, I just can't imagine what it must have been like for this body to be gone and for them to be like, now what? Then where is he? He, he can't have, he could he have? Like this internal struggle with, he couldn't have, but he, maybe he did and I don't understand, right? Jews believed in resurrection, right? They believed that that would be a thing, but it wasn't supposed to happen until the end of the story, until the, the Messiah comes back and returns, where all those who are faithful will be raised up and go 
to heaven together. The righteous will be raised. So this resurrection was happening in the middle of the story to one guy. So their whole idea of what it meant to be resurrected was sort of being messed with, right? But then Jesus takes over the conversation. And I love this part. He speaks to a different part of them. In verse 25, he said to them, how foolish are you and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. There's an exclamation point. He's serious about this, right? Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, after beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's a big chunk of the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus is coming at it from a brand new angle. He's speaking to another part of their person, their intellectual side, their theological side. He's drawing comparisons for them and saying, from Moses all the way to the prophets, here's all the places where I'm telling you about myself, Jesus, the one who is to come. You know these stories. I'm going to help. I'm going to make these um, connections for you. I'm not going to let you guess anymore. I'm going to make it abundantly clear to you. I imagine that conversation took a while. And none of it is recorded for us in one long thing, but you know that they went back. Right? They went back and shared these connections, these pieces with, uh, with the rest of the disciples. And Jesus connects their heart and their head. First he says, what do you believe about me? What does your faith say about who I am? And then here's the, 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 the intellectual proof of who I am and who I said I was going to be. Right? We always talk about the heart and the head. The heart is about the faith and the belief that we have, right? Some things we don't get to fully understand. We call it the mystery of the gospel, right? And we have to take them on faith alone. That's sort of the definition of faith. But everyone has faith. It just depends on what you put your faith in. Everybody has a belief system, whether it, it contains Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, or not. That's why... That's why we talk about it so much. Is you, have to, you have to make sure that what we know about who Jesus is is also in our heart. But then there's the other side that he, he talks about. It's the head, the logical, the reason. Those things, although sometimes elude me, <laughs> are also part of the Christian story, right? The intellectual side. The, that's why part of the reason I love to, to the, the study part, right, of, of, of the word and saying, all right, what did first century Jews think about this text? I want to know it. I want to know scripture. I want to know what it means. I want, to, I want to be filled with that knowledge. That's important. My friend Ryan is a science guy. He just is. He loves science. His wife does too. They're they outdoorsy. They can like tell you constellations and things like that. They, science makes sense to them. They both have sciencey brains. And I'll never forget what he said once. He was preparing to, to give a talk to his Young Life kids. And he said, science makes me understand God better. And my understanding of God helps me understand and appreciate science more. Like the two things don't have to be these polar opposites, right? People say, well, guy, if you were really, if you're really smart and intellectual, then you would dismiss, I mean, you wouldn't be a Christian. They have to go together, right? Faith requires both pieces. And Jesus knew that and what, that's exactly what he was getting at by making sure that he was appearing at the road to Emmaus. Sometimes we rely heavily on one or the other. 
right? And, and sometimes it comes down to your personality, right? Like I'm a feeler. I got all the feels all the time. I cry all the time. I have, my empathy levels are through the roof, right? The logical side of me, I don't always do the thing that makes the most practical sense, much to my mother's chagrin sometimes, right? That's, that's my bend. But I think the church, and we've been talking a lot about not just us as individuals, but the church, we tend to rely as a group of people sometimes too heavily on the intellectual side of things. Our theology is very important to us, and it should be. But when we can't connect the stuff that's up here with the stuff that's in here that causes us to live and move and be transformed by the gospel, then our faith is a little lopsided. They get closer to the village and uh, they still don't recognize them. And it isn't until Jesus breaks bread with them that, he, that they recognize him. This is something that Jesus had been doing with them time and time again. Taking the bread and saying, this is my body. It's gonna be broken for you. This is, this is, the, this is my blood. This is the cup of my blood and it's gonna be a new covenant and it's gonna be poured out for you. And I think that's their trigger moment where their eyes are opened and they begin to see Jesus for who he really is. They believed in who he was. Jesus keeps appearing to his disciples. This whole next section of Luke is all about how he appears to them. He, he kind of brings them in in their doubt. He lets them look at him. He uh, pokes, he, he's allowed, they're allowed to poke and prod him. He um, says, you guys got anything to eat? Like, I'm here, I'm in, I'm, I'm back, I'm, I, am, I am in the flesh, I am back again, here for you. You, you got something to eat? The story just isn't over. I just, talking in worship planning this week with Jody and with Krista, I just kind of coming up to this, this realization that the story just keeps going. He has, he has risen, he is back, and he is continuing to preach his message. The message isn't about heaven. Well, it is and it isn't. You, you get to go there. When you claim the name of the risen Jesus, where he conquers our sin and death, we get to join him in heaven. But his plan for us in our lives is that we, we don't wait to get there. We bring heaven to earth. He makes sure that people see who he is and that he is risen because he didn't just leave. In 1 Corinthians 5 and uh, 15, verse 6, uh, well, you can read that little section. He appears to over 500 people at the same time. Jesus made sure the focus of the rest of his time on earth was an earth story and not a heaven story. Are you, this isn't about where you get to go. I mean, you do hear me say that, but. He wants to make sure that you know that he came down for us. Jesus came down for us. He spent on time, time on earth for us. He cares about what happens here and now. Right? Remember, the father sent his one and only son down to earth for us, not because he was saying, look at these guys, they're doing it wrong. They need help. They're not doing everything right. No, that's not what he says. He says, he sent his son out of his great love for us. It was a love story that, this, that started this whole thing. Right? He cares so much that he gave us his resurrection power in the world. That it doesn't just stop here. 
He says, my authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so go and make disciples. Jesus always ended all his, his parables and stuff we've been talking about. Anytime Jesus, Jesus was talking, he always was ending everything with go and do. Some version of go and do. My authority in heaven and earth has been given to me and I'm giving it to you. You don't get to play a passive part in the resurrection. You don't get to just stand around in bewilderment. Oh, isn't this amazing? Happy Easter, he's risen. He's risen indeed and we get excited. You have responsibility. You have a part to play. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to you as well. Philippians 2 says that we have the very same mind of Christ Jesus. Because we are in him, he lives in us. I love the way 1 John 4 says it. In this world, you are like Jesus. You're like him. That's a truth that you get to claim and take on yourself. When you're in Jesus, when, G when you are a part of Jesus, when you claim and believe that he is the resurrected Lord and Savior, then you are like him. And if you're like him, you've got stuff to do. Not do because you have to earn it. Not do because if we don't, then he'll be mad at us. No, 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 we get, it's a, we get to. We get to be like him and to, and to love people the way that he loves people. That radical love of God now resides in you. It, it was radical and it didn't make sense and it ticked a whole bunch of people off and it was mostly church people. Yep, that's the truth. He ticked church people off all the time, right? The power and authority of Jesus courses through your veins by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Easter is exciting. That's why this moment, because it's, it's where the story starts. Heaven is waiting for you, but to bring heaven here is what we want to focus on, right? We can have this idea that, that all we need to do is get to heaven, but heaven is in our home. We live here. He wants us to engage the world now. We don't wait. Engage now. Be part of what he's doing in the ways that he's already at work now. There should be a sense of urgency because we don't get to live forever. That's where the urgency comes in, right? Because we want people to know the truth. We want to, to be part of what Jesus is doing as he's drawing people to himself so that they can spend eternity with us in heaven. But also Jesus promises us, God promises us that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. He cares about earth. He keeps talking about this place that he came to and he was a part of we have all been crucified with Christ, so you can stop trying to try harder, right? You were crucified. Your sins were crucified with Christ on the cross. That old man is dead. You have a new life in him because of who he is. So you can stop trying to do it right, to be better. Everybody has these lies that we believe about ourselves. That we're not good enough. That we're not doing it right. I was talking to Amanda. Amanda couldn't be here today. Um, she was gonna share this part of her story. And I said, don't worry, she, her um, in-laws uh, had a baby. So yay for them. And uh, so she wanted to be a part of that and just be there and meet this kid. And so I was like, you'll have plenty of Sundays to tell this story. But she, I, she had permission from her to, to share part of it. And she said, there's just so many lies that I believed about myself. And I, it resonated with me. And I said, I think it's gonna resonate with just sometimes just church people. 
right? Those of us that have grew up in this place and it's done a really lot of good for us, but sometimes it messes with us a little bit. It's performance-based acceptance, right? It's the same thing that that makes her clean her house every Saturday morning because her mom taught her how to clean her house Saturday morning. And then somewhere along the line, having a clean house and doing those kinds of things were what you did to do it right. And then that trickled into all other areas of her life. This lie that if I do it right, if I perform in all the ways I'm supposed to perform, then I will get love and acceptance. Oh, that's true for me. And there's other lies I believe about myself. What are your lies? Sometimes we we talk so much about the the sin in our lives, right? And, And lies are part of that, but we don't always, we forget those parts because for some of us, our sin, our, our lies don't lie in the typical things, right? Promiscuity, drugs, sex, alcohol, those kinds of things. Those are the things we talk about when it comes to those things. I keep thinking of drug, sex, and rock and roll, but that's not a, that's a, different, well, that's a different thing, right? But, but some of us, for us, it's, ch- it's church stuff. It's, it's, it's finding your identity, not in who Jesus says you are, but in the fact that you volunteer at church or you serve in the nursery or the list goes, like you do these things that are good and you're doing them for God. But you are accepted and loved because Jesus said so by his death on the cross and his resurrection, right? You don't have to believe in those lies. You get to claim everything that's true about Jesus is now true about you. And that's a little overwhelming because with that, I feel like comes some responsibility, right? But it's kind of one of those, alone, I'm not enough. But because Jesus lives in me, greater is he that is in me. Greater is he that is in me. Ephesians um, 1, 13 says it this way. And you are also, I love this part. And you are also included in Christ. Inclusion, included, that's a big word. Everybody wants to be included. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. God invades our lives and our stories. God is doing something in the midst of us today you have a story of where your life changed because of something God did. Maybe sometimes for us, for maybe that grew up in Christian homes, we have this idea that we don't have a story. It's just always been a thing. But the more we talk with people, everybody has these moments in their life where it became real for them, where they understood that Jesus was for them, where they understood that their sins were crucified on a cross. Where, Where is that truth for you? You don't have to hang on to your sin. You don't have to hang on to the person that you were. You don't have to hang on to the person you even maybe think that you are. Sometimes we live up to our own expectations and we have low expectations. We have low expectations for other people, people in our lives that we we want maybe to be better, but we set the bar really low. But in Christ, we get to set the bar high because we are like him. In this world, you are like Jesus. You've been bought by the blood of Jesus. Your chains are gone and you've been set free. So you gotta go and do. Be Jesus in all the places, right? 
when people are done spending time with you, I want them to feel as if they've spent time with Jesus. Do you have people in your life that are like that? When you hang out with them, you just feel like you've spent time with Jesus. I have people like that when I leave. I, I, I'll, sometimes I'll text, I'll say that. Like, spending time with you makes me feel like I was with Jesus. The way that you love me and care about me, the way that you listen to me, makes me feel loved and cared about by the Father just by being with you. That's the win, friends. Like, that's what we are called to do. And not just called, we are commanded. We are, if there's anything that we need to maybe get a little fired up about, is, is the, we need to take it seriously. <laughs> we need to take it seriously. We can't come on Easter and celebrate a risen Lord and then sit on our butts the rest of everything else waiting for things to happen. We need to take care of the widow and the stranger among us in whatever that looks like. We need to pay attention to those who are marginalized and those who are left for dead. We need to be less exclusive and more inclusive in the people that we want to spend time with, in the people that we allow into our lives and into our church. We want to be Jesus. We want them to look at us and to see that and to feel that and to not only speak truth because we want to love people, love people deeply and we want to speak truth, but I would much rather have our actions speak so much louder than our words and for our love to be overflowing and for us to strive for inclusivity in the ways that we care about people. That I don't know your story, but you're welcome here. I don't know where you've been, but you're welcomed here Don't pretend you don't see people. Instead, we have to seek them out. That's what it means to worship a resurrected Jesus, is that everyone is created in the image of the creator and Jesus who redeemed the world left us the task of being like him in the world. We have hope and because of our hope, we get to continue to bring that hope to the world. Be Jesus, be his hands and feet, serve, but sometimes just show up. Jesus just showed up and he spent time with people. And it was messy and hard and frustrating. Jesus were more like us, the more human side of him. He would have found people more frustrating. He would have gotten what we get. It's, fr it's hard to be in those places with hard people, but that's where Jesus spent his time. And that's what the resurrection means. Loving people where they are. Hear these words from Isaiah. Do not be afraid, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you go through deep waters of great trouble, I'll be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through fire of oppression, you will not be burned. The flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Be blessed by the very words of Jesus. Go in peace.